Welcome to Treasure Mountain, the podcast that inspires and guides people to find the treasure within human experience. I'm your host, Sol Hanna. On this episode of Sage Advice, we have as our return guest, Arjan Bramali from Bodhnyana Monastery in Western Australia. Arjan Bramali was born in Norway in 1964 and first became interested in Buddhism when traveling in Japan in his 20s. After completing university degrees in finance and engineering, he decided that his true calling was the dedicated spiritual life of a bhikkhu, a Buddhist monk. Having heard the teachings of Ajahn Brahm, he travelled to Western Australia in 1994 and took higher ordination in 1996. Ajahn Brahmali is both a dedicated meditator and has a love for the teachings of the Buddha. And he has become widely respected for his work, both translating Buddhist texts, but also explaining the context of early Buddhism to modern audiences. In this episode, we're going to delve into controversy by finding out why secular Buddhism is baloney. And the reasons may not be what you think. And who better to lift the lid on secular Buddhism than both a scholar of early Buddhism and a monk with nearly three decades of experience meditating in the forests of the southwest of Australia. So join us as we seek an authentic treasure of the Dhamma. Treasure Mountain, Arjun. How are you today? I um, I think I'm good enough, actually. Yeah, just about right. <laughs> I know How previously you? I, you said that, is this a philosophical question? Uh, <laughs> but uh, not, not not just at the moment. Um, I hear that you're quite busy at the moment. Have you got uh, a course coming up on, is it on early Buddhism? Yeah, you were breaking up a little bit. But yes, indeed, we have a course coming up starting on Friday in just over two weeks. It's going to be on uh, Sama Samadhi, you know, right stillness or right Samadhi in the um, early Buddhist texts. It's going to be with my good friend Venerable Sunyo, who is also at the monastery, actually is in Holland right now. And we're going to do this together at the Dhammaloka Center. That's going to be, I think, very exciting, at least exciting for me, hopefully for the audience as well. So we'll see how, see how things go. So please, anyone, tune in to that one. It's going to be a good learning experience for everyone, I hope. And I believe also you've got a upcoming tour of the United States. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So I will be going to the uh, US in mid-January. And uh, I will be basically going across the entire US continent, starting in California and going to some of the various Buddhist groups in California. Then uh, after that, I will be staying at a place called the Karuna Buddhist Vihara, which is uh, in the kind of Silicon Valley area. And then I will be going off to Minneapolis for a retreat, then off to Chicago for a few talks, then to uh, New Jersey, New York, for stay at the monastery there. And then finally, I'll go to the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies in uh, uh, near Boston. So uh, a big tour. So if anyone uh, is interested in that, then, uh, you know, there will be, there is already actually information on that on the BSWA website. Uh, 
and the itinerary is there and all the various details, how to contact, how to take part, etc., is all available. So that's, uh, yeah, that's, that's it. I will be making sure to put a link in the description below because that sounds really, really interesting and worth going along to if you are in the United States. Anyway, let's get stuck into our topic. But before we get stuck into this idea of what uh, uh, secular Buddhism is, Baloney, what is it? How can we define what secular Buddhism is? <laughs> okay. So um, secular Buddhism is uh, really kind of what you might call a reaction to traditional Buddhism. Uh, yeah, traditional Buddhism around the world is a kind of Buddhism you find in the various countries around the world, what you find in places like Thailand and Sri Lanka, etc. And of course, if you go to those countries, what you find, you find a lot of things that... Uh, remind you of religion in the West, of Christianity or of Islam or whatever else it might be. And so I think for many people who have given up on Christianity, they don't want to go back into that kind of uh, uh, same feeling of religion that they had uh, before. And they want to actually advance. They want to go somewhere else, something which is more uh, secular in nature rather than has the same trappings as uh, they had in their previous uh, you know, life as Christians or whatever. And, uh, I think that is where kind of the idea comes from so they want to throw out all the what they consider superstitions what they consider empty rituals what they consider meaningless uh, as uh, you know cultural additions to the kind of core teachings of the buddha and then come back to something which is more essential something more core about these teachings but i think to really understand uh, what secular buddhism is about i think we have to just briefly just talk about what secular the word secular actually means and um, the idea of uh, secularism, it kind of grew out of the Enlightenment in Europe back in the, you know, uh, 17th century, 18th century, etc. Uh, and it was obviously a reaction to Christianity. Christianity at that time was very dogmatic. It was very inflexible. It was very unwilling to listen to reasons and, uh, and all of these kind of things. It was very stuck in a particular worldview. And then when people started to say, well, actually, maybe the sun doesn't go around the earth. The church put down its foot saying, yes, the sun goes around the earth. And that kind of stuff, and it created an enormous kind of conflict between people who were naturalists and people who were religious. So Copernicus was kind of banned or, or had problems with the church, and Galileo famously, of course, had lots of problems with the church. And so out of that, understanding that the church was not really amenable to the realities of the world, uh, the secular mo uh, movement started to come out from that. Uh, and they were then saying that, well, we want to run our society based on naturalism, based on what actually exists, based on real things, not on some dogmatic adherence to some kind of ancient idea which came out of the Middle East 2,000 years ago or whatever. In there. So that is the start of the, uh, the secularist movement. And this, the very important point here is that it was naturalism, in other words, the study of nature, the study of the world, contra-dogmatism. That is kind of the whole point here, what this was about. Uh, so, um, uh, so then, of course, the, uh, the, then comes what I was saying before about, you know, Buddhism. What is Buddhism? If you know what secularism, what then is Buddhism? And of course, the interesting point about Buddhism is that it is a large variety of things, depending on the people who are concerned with it. So you have Buddhism that is, uh, you know, as I mentioned before, the traditional Buddhists who mix Buddhism with culture, mix Buddhism with all kinds of ideas that they have been bringing along for a very long period of time. 
but then there is also Buddhism, which is uh, uh, more the kind of the uh, early Buddhism, the Buddhism that actually the Buddha himself taught two and a half thousand years ago. Uh, and these things are not the same. Uh. So secular Buddhism, I would argue, should really be a response to uh, you know many of the ways that Buddhism is practiced, where it is practiced as a religion. Uh, that, is, that is where uh, secular Buddhism actually fits the bill very well. And it kind of... Uh, it um, it has a job to do, but uh, uh, where secular Buddhism goes too far and where I think there is a problem, that is where, and we can talk about this later on, obviously, uh, is where it actually sets itself against the early Buddhist teachings of the Buddha. That's where it becomes problematic. Yeah. So maybe we start with that, so and see where we go now. Yeah. No, that's excellent. That's a really excellent uh, description of the context and where secular Buddhism is coming from. I think that's really valuable. But no, let's get stuck straight into it. You're implying that there's something about secular Buddhism that is flawed, that something is left out, deliberately left out, in terms of its presentation of Buddhism. What is that thing that's left out and why is it a problem? Yeah. So the... Um... Uh, the, again, we need to make this distinction between, uh, if you wish, modern Buddhism and, you know, religious Buddhism and early Buddhism. And lots of people practice Buddhism almost the same way as Christians would practice Christianity. Uh, they would pray to the Buddha or they would, you know, do all kinds of things which are just, uh, you know, the, the power of ritual for its own sake and these kind of things, very common things that happen in the world. Uh, and I think there, it, there is a, a grounds for saying that maybe some of those things actually are problematic and some there are superstitious, you know, medallions and this kind of thing which are supposed to protect you. Uh, <clears throat> there's a famous story of a Thai general apparently bought this very, very expensive medallion. Uh, and they get really expensive, right? This was like uh, $50,000 or something like that for, for a medallion. It's kind of <laughs> something really crazy. And of course, the value of these medallions, they go up, the kind of the... Uh, uh, depending on the power, supposed power of the monk or the nun who has blessed this medallion, uh, the value goes up a lot. Uh, and so this monk, this general, he got hold of this medallion, supposedly blessed by some very powerful monks or whatever, uh, and he was convinced that now he was never ever again going to, he couldn't, he couldn't die because of this medallion, uh, right? Uh, and so because he couldn't die because of the medallion, it meant that anyone could shoot at him uh, and he would be fine. So he got one of his underlings to point the pistol at him, shoot him, uh, and what happened? He died. So this, was, <laughs> so this is the kind of uh, thing, yeah, which kind of goes on. That's where kind of secular Buddhism actually really has a place because it actually takes, you know, we come back to reality again. We come back to naturalism again. Huh? But when it comes to uh, early Buddhism, the teaching of the Buddha himself, uh, it actually is a very, there's a very a big, uh, important question there. To what extent is the teaching of the Buddha really a religion at all? Huh? And this is a very important point. What actually do we mean by the word religion? And if we mean something that is akin to Christianity, Buddhism is actually very different. And the reason why Buddhism is different is because the Buddha always claimed one simple thing, that he had realized the nature of reality. Yeah, He had understood the conditions of the human mind and the human body, what it means to be a human being. That is what it claimed. So the claim is not counter to naturalism. Naturalism, as understood in the Western context, just means understanding nature, right? So early Buddhism does not really make a claim to be outside of the world. Actually, it is very much part of the world. And so when a secular Buddhist comes along and says, well, we're going to throw out the things that we think are superstitious in Buddhism, 
Well, basically what they are throwing out is things that the Buddha claims to have discovered. <laughs> so this is right, right there is really, really problematic because uh, actually you, uh, you know, you are, you, you are you're making a value judgment on what the world really is like when actually you don't know. You're saying this is right, this is wrong. And the reason you're saying this is right, because this is our modern society. In our modern society, we have these ideas, this way of looking at the world. This must be correct because we are more advanced than India was two and a half thousand years ago. Ergo, the Buddha was wrong. We are right. So we're going to take out the stuff that the Buddha got wrong. And then we're going to present Buddhism and you. That's kind of, <laughs> it's very, very problematic. It's very hubristic. And we again, we'll talk about more about this later on probably. But it shows to me a lack of taking refuge in the teachings of the Buddha. You don't really, you haven't really accepted that there are limitations in our current worldview as the world is now. You haven't really understood how culture develops, how scientific and philosophical understanding and insights, how they develop over time. And because of that, you hold on too much to uh, our current ideas and our current worldview and don't give enough credit uh, to the insight of someone like the Buddha. But uh, coming back to your question, Sol, because that, what you were really asking about, why is this problematic? What does it actually mean? And what it means is that some of the very core teachings of the Buddha are basically thrown out, yeah, because uh, ideas that are not really generally accepted in the modern materialist paradigm, the kind of the worldview that we have at the moment, uh, are things like rebirth. There's no way that rebirth is acceptable to the materialist worldview, because from the materialist point or the physicalist worldview, the mind is a, a result of material phenomena. So if the material phenomena are no longer there, if the material phenomena cease, like they do at death, then of course the idea of rebirth becomes impossible by definition in that kind of paradigm. So then the secular Buddhists argue that, well, then we should throw out rebirth. Rebirth cannot be possibly be true. And by doing that, what we are doing is we're throwing out one of the very fundamental pillars of what Buddhism really is about. Uh, it's hard to overstate the importance of rebirth according to the early sutta. I, in fact, I want to get into this a bit more at, at some point during this conversation because it is so important. Uh, so rebirth is thrown out, but not just rebirth. What you also throw out, you throw out a very large part of the Buddhist idea of kamma. Kamma is the idea that you know we reap results from our actions. And a very important part of that, other, I would say the most important part of that, uh, are the results we reap in future lives. Yeah. So again, this has to do with rebirth. Uh, another aspect that gets thrown out is the very idea of awakening or enlightenment itself, uh, because awakening enlightenment is defined in the suttas, and it's always defined in exactly the same way. Yeah. It is defined as the ending of rebirth. Uh, so there's three things right there. There is the uh, you 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 will deny rebirth, you uh, deny large part of kamma, and you deny or you take away basically the idea of what awakening is about. Now, those three things, rebirth, kamma, and awakening, well, these are precisely the three insights the Buddha had on his night of awakening. This is exactly what he saw, right? This is the essence of the whole Buddhist teachings, for goodness sake. They're known as the Tevidja. And so if you take that out, or you, or you only see a very, very small part of those things, uh, you are essentially uh, going counter to the entire insight that the Buddha had on his night of awakening. Yeah. So it is really, really problematic. Yeah. Let me just stop there. So so we can, uh, yeah. 
Yeah, so it sounds like that really secular Buddhism is really just modern materialistic, uh, sorry, materialism uh, with a veneer of Buddhism on top uh, with some certain bits that feel good to us, we can put them in on top. I know that uh, you you previously said uh, in our previous correspondence that Buddhism without rebirth uh, is not Buddhism. Mm -hmm. uh, and you did say you wanted to go into more detail about that. What I mean, obviously, this is one of the key insights of the Buddha upon his awakening. Would you, what else can we say about that? There's an enormous amount that can be said about that. I, you know, this is really kind of critical. And I think uh, Buddhism without um, rebirth just isn't Buddhism. It's something completely different because all the main teachings of the Buddha have to be rewritten. They have to be re-understood uh, in a different way. And uh, that is exactly what is happening around the world. Uh, some of these people who call themselves secular Buddhists, they are actually doing just that. They're rewriting Buddhism uh, and they're creating a new religion. And that new religion is, uh, I don't know what it is, but it's not Buddhism anymore. Uh, so to give you some examples, and uh, one of the things that I think people sometimes do not understand is that the Four Noble Truths, uh, every one of the Four Noble Truths revolves around the idea of rebirth. Uh, so let's start. And uh, of course, the Four Noble Truths, this is kind of, this is really what Buddhism is about. Uh, yeah, it's said somewhere else, it's said, it said in the uh, Longer Sutta on the Elephant's Footprint, it is said that all the good teachings of the Buddha, all wholesome things are included in the Four Noble Truths. Uh, so this is really the container for everything else, uh, and it revolves around the idea of rebirth. Uh. So <clears throat> let's start with the first noble truth. Uh. The first noble truth starts off by saying that birth is suffering, old age is suffering, death is suffering, uh, right? Jati Paduka, Jada Paduka, Maranam Paduka. And uh, that is what it starts out with. Uh. And what does that actually mean? Okay, birth is suffering. Uh, and what that actually means in this context, and this is kind of the critical point, uh, and to understand this, you have to remember that the purpose of Buddhism is to overcome suffering, right? Uh, so because the purpose is to overcome suffering, when the Buddha says birth is suffering, it must refer to rebirth, must refer to birth in the mm. future. Uh, cannot refer to past birth. Uh, yes, our past birth may have been suffering, but it's kind of irrelevant. We finished with that. We've been through that already. Uh, so the correct translation of jati in this context really should be rebirth is suffering yeah? yeah rather than birth is suffering and i have noticed some of our contemporary translators have actually started to translate jati uh, as rebirth and then we start to understand the first noble truth in an entirely different way rebirth is suffering okay then you understand that this is about the future it's about where we're going it's about the perpetuation of this thing we call sangsara they kind of wandering on in this a realm of never being satisfied, always finding more problems and suffering in, in the world. And um, so this is a very, I think, very interesting point of translation. I, I, please forgive me for talking about translation, but I've been deeply involved with translation reason. I'm really kind of keen on these kind of uh, ideas, how to translate properly when you translate something. Yeah? And people might say that, well, jati means birth. How can you translate it as rebirth? But I think this is where we need to understand the cultural context when we translate something. Words and concepts and ideas don't exist in isolation. They exist as part of a whole cultural matrix. You know, this kind of um, all these things that influence how we understand individual words. Uh, individual words hardly have any meaning at all unless they are, you know, part of a larger context. Uh, and uh, so, uh, jati, uh, the word in Pali, 
the cultural context is that birth, an instance of birth is always an instance of rebirth. Yeah, it, it, these two things are basically equated in the ancient uh, Indian uh, worldview. And for that reason, when they hear the word birth, Jati, they actually hear rebirth. Whereas when we hear the word birth, we don't even think about rebirth at all. It's completely out of our minds. So to be able to bring that across, the understanding properly, actually it is appropriate to translate Jati as rebirth uh, rather than birth. So we actually get the same message as the ancient Indians were getting when they heard these particular words. So anyway, that's how we, how we need to translate. We need to be very, very careful with the context. And when you are careful, actually, first noble truth becomes rebirth, and it changes our entire idea of what uh, the first noble truth is about. Uh, then you have Jara, which is old age, exactly the same thing again. Yeah, The old age that we can overcome is not the old age in this life. We're already going to get old in this life. If, if we are lucky, that is, we're going to get old. If we're not lucky, we're not even going to get old. But assuming that we are lucky enough to get reasonably older, maybe not too older, but you know, kind of middle way, then um, um, again, it must refer to future lives because we are doomed you know, to get old in this life. And certainly we are doomed to die. So death is always going to come with us. So if we are going to overcome death entirely, sure, we can reduce the suffering of dying by practicing well, by being wise about it, by having thoughts of loving kindness, letting go of our body, all of these kinds of things. We can reduce the suffering of death, but we cannot eliminate it completely. The only death you can eliminate completely is death in future lives. So the first noble truth is just steeped in the idea of rebirth. Then you have the very last part of the um, um, uh, first noble truth, which says Sankitena Panchabhadana Kanda Dukkha. Yeah, the, in brief, the five grasping aggregates, or the five personality factors, or whatever you want to call them, are suffering. And these two can only, this suffering too, can only be eliminated upon rebirth. We are stuck with these personality factors in this life. Only on rebirth can we really overcome those personality factors. So rebirth is everywhere. That's only the first noble truth. Can I, can I carry on a bit, Sol? I'm just going to... Please, please do, yeah. Okay. So then we have the, uh, uh, the second noble truth, which, of course, is about the origin of suffering. Why do we suffer in the first place? And this... Um, Origin of suffering uh, says that craving is the origin of suffering, right? This is kind of a standard uh, Buddhist uh, idea. And sometimes people understand this to mean, that well, when I crave, I suffer. Therefore, craving is the cause of suffering. Mm. That's a misunderstanding of the second noble truth. Because if craving makes you suffer right here and now, if it actually is craving is actually a state of suffering in its own right. Uh, because you, when you crave... You are separated from where you want to be. You're separated from what you would like the world to be like. Yeah. So actually, the fact that craving is suffering belongs to the first noble truth, not the second noble truth. Yeah. And if you read the first mm. noble truth properly, you will see it, it's actually there. Yeah, Being separated from what you like is suffering. Being united with what you don't like is suffering. It's actually part of the first noble truth. Yeah. So the second noble truth is about something completely different. And if you read it properly, it specifically says in the second noble truth that uh, it is the pornobhavika tanna. Pornobhavika means re-existence craving. Yeah? The craving that has to do with re-existence, in other words, rebirth. That is the craving that is talked about. There it is very specific. It is really, you know, if you read it properly, it is very obvious what is going on in that particular context. Then we come to the third noble truth, 
and the third noble truth says tassa yeva tanhaya sesa viraga niroda etc and uh, tassa yeva tanhaya that means that very craving it refers back to the craving of the second noble truth so because of that it also has to do with the craving that leads to rebirth yeah it's the same same kind coming to the fourth noble truth well there it starts off with right view right view is about the four noble truths we have just seen that the four noble truths are all about rebirth yeah and uh, and even even if right view is not that full insight into the four noble truths if it is a lesser kind of right view it is everywhere any kind of right view in the suttas is about rebirth in one way or another so there you are the very scaffolding of what all of what buddhism is about concerns the idea of rebirth through and through all the way through and i think um, once people start to realize that they start to understand actually buddhism without rebirth the only way you can kind of get the uh, grips to the four noble truths without rebirth you have to rewrite the whole idea of the four noble truths that is exactly what is happening i'll, I'll give you an, a very severe example of that and that is the example of uh, someone who said that well it's actually not craving that leads to suffering it's suffering that leads to craving yeah. so he reversed the second the second noble truth mm. and that's kind of uh, <laughs> pretty pretty radical stuff and then the and, and what is problematic about it is not so much that okay you, of course you can reverse that if you want but the problem is that you present yourself as a buddhist you present yourself as an authority yeah you're saying this is basically i'm coming come, you know i'm here as a buddhist to tell you about buddhism you're selling your books in the name of buddhism and you're presenting something that's completely counter to the what the buddha taught that to me is really problematic if you're going to pre- mm. pretend to be a buddhist what at least you should pre- you know if you are a follower of the buddha you should present what the buddha taught not your own ideas so mm. that that is for starters yeah why it is really problematic to talk about rebirth so the four noble truths let me just uh, please stop me at any time so if you think i'm i'm kind of carry on too much but uh, another very obvious place uh, to look at this is uh, dependent origination yeah dependent origination uh, has is this a beautiful formula by the buddha that shows how suffering arises from the root cause of avijja avijja being delusion or ignorance or however you want to uh, translate it uh, and in this particular 12 sequence formula it's a causal formula showing how avijja leads to suffering always through 12 links we can't really go into detail here but uh, in, in one of these links again you have the word jati just as you have in the first noble truth you have an independent origination as well there now if you say that jati if you say that jati does not mean rebirth then perhaps it means something else well then again you are you know this whole sequence of dependent origination really depends on how we understand this particular word if there is no rebirth well then jati must mean something else it must mean uh, maybe it is a metaphor for you know mind states or maybe it just uh, i don't know what it could mean but we have to redefine this whole this whole particular sequence so what that means then is that instead of dependent origination being something a, a, a formula which shows us how our uh, lives are kind of propelled on in this samsaric existence of ours how we kind of renew the idea of re- rebirth and suffering and death etc from life to life is that showing us that which is like a big picture idea what the world is uh, 
Instead, it becomes something completely different, something to do with this life, some kind of psychological mechanism that drives the ego consciousness or whatever it is. This is kind of standard interpretations of people. And so we have, basically, we're looking at one another of the core teachings of the Buddha in a completely new way and kind of mm. jettisoning the, the ideas that the Buddha came with. So again, very, very problematic, yeah. I think, Ajahn, that you've given a very eloquent examples of how uh, secular Buddhism is at best misrepresenting the teachings of the Buddha and at worst is a counterfeit version of Buddhism. Uh, that's, and you've given an excellent explanation of that. I'm interested to uh, try and understand what are the consequences of that because, you know, these teachings can be very persuasive uh, they can appeal to the views of particularly of Westerners. Uh, if someone was to say, well, you know, this rebirth thing is just superstition, uh, come on, well, you know, maybe it's a little bit sometimes, but we've got a slightly dubious view on, on karma. What would be the outcome for a person if they were trying to, they think they're practicing Buddhism, but would they be practicing Buddhism at all? <laughs> Yes, that's a very good question. And I would argue they're not practicing Buddhism, actually. I would argue that they are practicing yeah, some aspects of Buddhism. They're practicing, you know, some parts of it. They, you know, do a bit of mindfulness or or whatever, but they are not really kind of understanding what this really is about, what these teachings really are about. They have really misunderstood the teachings. The teachings of the Buddha are not about being mindful day to day. Arguably, that is part of it, but it's only a tiny part of it. The actual purpose is much, much larger and much more kind of the aim, the goal is much larger than, than that. So they are really missing out on these teachings of the Buddha. And that is very, very serious. If there is such a thing as rebirth, well, then there is a massive problem in our lives. It's, some, it's a really serious problem. If you try to start to understand the consequences of rebirth, what it actually means for us, the consequences are enormous in fact it makes the whole whole difference on what we you know on uh, how we deal with life how we approach life and and all of these kind of things and so um, i would say that uh, uh, when you know when we uh, present uh, the buddhist teachings we should ensure that we don't uh, uh, we, at the very least we don't kind of go counter to what the buddha taught we shouldn't dismiss the idea of rebirth we may not have to talk about rebirth straight away you don't have to bring these things in straight away but uh, you at the very least you shouldn't kind of go counter to these things and dismiss them as if they were not the teachings of the buddha because what you end up with you end up with a very very shallow version of buddhism a very impoverished version of buddhism which actually doesn't take you very very far at all and the consequences are very uh, serious. I think one of the important consequences uh, uh, is, and I've seen this uh, with uh, many people actually, is that uh, monastics who don't believe in rebirth, uh, they have a tendency to disrobe. And uh, mm. the reason is because why would you want to kind of uh, invest so much time in a monastic life? I can, you, you know, as a monastic, you are potentially, you are giving up a lot. It depends what you get back in return. If you are a good meditator, you get some nice states of meditation, then you're not giving up anything, you're actually enjoying it. But let's say that your meditation is kind of average or, or maybe it's not really going anywhere. This this happens in monastic life as well. Well, then you need a larger picture. You need some kind of, uh, you know, understanding of the world for why you should keep on doing this, despite the fact that you're giving up so many things. 
So it's a very common thing that people who don't believe in rebirth, after a while, your desire for a relationship or your desire for worldly things kind of returns. Maybe your meditation isn't going so well and you meet some kind of potential person who is very nice. And then why why carry on if uh, you know if 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 you're gonna can live lay life you can enjoy yourself and at the end of the end of your life you die and everything is finished anyway and then you're kind of done with and there's no, no issues so we i think what we are doing is that we are undermining things like monasticism for example yeah if we if we do this and uh, uh, you find in secular circles tend to be lay people oriented, all about lay practice, basically. And monasticism mm. is kind of sidelined. In fact, one of the things that uh, uh, secular Buddhists will tell you is that monasticism is perhaps redundant. Yeah, It's not really required. Uh, we don't really need this in the modern age because, well, it doesn't really answer any um, to any problem that we have. Uh, it doesn't really have any, uh, you know, there's, there's no need for it, really, in the way the way things are. Yeah? So um, that I yeah so those are the the things that uh, I kind of find very problematic and if there is such a thing as a rebirth uh, and you're not told about it or you don't believe in it uh, then uh, of course you are you know it, the, the consequences of them not being able to act or live accordingly uh, are are going to be very very severe for you uh, down the track yeah. Yeah, Ajahn, I'd like to just add a supplementary question onto that. Um, when we talk about rebirth in the beginning, when you start practice, it is an idea. We may not have um, direct evidence or any kind of certainty to begin with about rebirth. And so, and I think that might be the context in which secular Buddhists say, well, you know, it's just a superstition, it's not true. However, my first, I've got a two part question here. First part is in meditation, if one gets into deep meditation, sama samadhi, is we could say that um, rebirth becomes validated in some way through experience. That's the first part of my question. In and the and the counterpart, I guess, to that is if we don't be, if if we uh, don't get good meditation and we don't believe in rebirth, maybe it becomes a block on ever being able to get deep enough meditation to be able to validate the reality of rebirth for ourselves. Yeah. Um, yes, I think that is, I think the first part is largely true. Yeah, if you have some, the deeper your meditation is, the more you can understand that the mind has like a separate existence, uh, that the mind can exist on its own. The body disappears completely. You have no awareness of the world. It's obviously that obvious that you have entered some kind of realm, which is beyond the ordinary physical realm. And so the, it's kind of, you know, it's fairly, um, it's a short step to take to assume that the mind can somehow exist uh, independent of uh, material phenomena, or at least with other kind of material phenomena and the ones that we are are used to. Uh, whether right, yeah. So that so I, I would agree. I would agree with that. So it's very very helpful to have deep meditation for sure. Now the other side of the story: if you don't believe in rebirth, uh, is it going to be a hindrance to achieve meditation? I would say. It can be, not necessarily. I would say that there are people who even can believe in a God, you know, or, or anything. And they, we know from the history uh, of religion that there have been people in all religions who have mystical experience that are similar to Samadhi and jhanas and these kind of things, and with all kinds of views and all kinds of ideas. 
But mm. on the other hand, I think the idea of rebirth can certainly be used to help you achieve samadhi. Absolutely. Mm. And one of the reasons is because once you start to understand the implications of rebirth, you start to lose your interest in the world. You see that the world is actually this place that you are tied down to forever going round and round, seeing the death of your loved one, seeing the disappearance of all your possessions, seeing that you're always moving from one realm to another one, always attaching to something and being forced to let go, then reattaching again afterwards, like a madman, making the same mistake again and again and again. It's kind of, when you start to understand what's going on, it's kind of scary. It's kind of terrible. You know, I, I find it really kind of, uh, and uh, so the, the idea of rebirth can actually help you if you use it in a wise way to let go of the world a little bit, because you actually, it is not interesting at all. And instead you want to take a refuge in the mind instead. Uh, but what I what I would like to do, so I want to say a little bit more about uh, uh, why I think it is fully acceptable from a modern point of view uh, to actually believe in rebirth. Uh, and the, the reason, I think one of the problems, as I was kind of uh, hinting at at the beginning, is that we take our current uh, society, our current values, our current worldview far too seriously sometimes. Uh, we don't understand that we are just like, like a short little blip in history. And that the ideas that we have now, the scientific insights that we have now, the philosophical ideas that we uh, cling on to now, they are just going to pass away like a fad or a fashion. And that there will be new philosophical ideas coming, coming up again in the future. And we don't really see ourselves clearly. We think that we are kind of the pinnacle of civilization after, you know, 200 or what is it one million year of homo sapiens or 200,000 years of homo sapiens or whatever it is i can't remember what no it's more than that at most yeah well, right it's less <laughs> it's yeah. more like a hundred thousand right so yeah so you know and, and that's what we and and this is just such a naive idea and uh, this was written about uh, it's, it's, I, it's maybe it's unfair to say it's naive it's kind of obvious that we would t- tend to think that way because this, this seems to have been this development all the time but actually when you look at uh, uh uh, if you start looking at history properly, you start to understand, actually, that's not how the world works. And one of the very interesting books that was written back in the 1960s, this was uh, became one of the kind of great uh, intellectual bestsellers at that time. That was called the, uh, called the um, uh, what is it called again now? The, uh, uh, the uh, something about scientific revolutions. What was it? What was it? Was it oh, the structure, the structure, the structure of scientific revolutions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And and the argument that the uh, that the author makes is that every age, every civilization, every society is trapped in a certain way of looking at things. He was talking about science and about you know the problems of scientific research, and then he was saying that well we are trapped in a certain way of looking at things. We don't see all the countervailing evidence that actually is there all the time. And then all that evidence has to build up and build up and build up until the kind of the the uh, uh, the mass of evidence is so great that you can't really ignore it anymore. And the moment you get to that point, then there is what he calls a paradigm shift, a shift in mm. worldview, a shift in outlook that then makes us see the world in a different way. So things like you know the um, Einstein's theories of relativity would have been such a paradigm shift. The quantum uh, understanding of the quantum nature of the, the world would be another such paradigm shift. And uh, but in while you are within that paradigm, you tend to take that paradigm for truth, even though we know that things are going to change again in the future. 
And so we are also trapped in a paradigm right now. And that paradigm is called physicalism, it's called materialism, the idea that the world kind of emerges from the mind. And once you start to understand that you are trapped in a paradigm, you start to not take it so seriously anymore. You know that there's going to be more evolution of these ideas in the future. And one of the... I totally of, agree, yeah. yeah. Continue, I totally agree, but yeah. continue, yeah. Right, yeah. So and and uh, so this is a kind of really, uh, uh, really significant. And that, that can be added to even more. One of the kind of interesting uh, uh, other insights that comes from a, a little bit of understanding of the... Uh, history of philosophy. I, you know, I'm just dabbling in this, so, so uh, it's not as if I have any much knowledge, but I have enough knowledge to know a little bit about what is going on. And this is the, uh, the kind of the seesawing or the pendulum swinging back and forth between different ideas. And if you go back to the ancient Greeks, you had Plato. Plato was an idealist. And an idealist is someone who believes that the world is basically mind. Mind is the primary thing in the world. And material phenomena are secondary. And they somehow come from mind. And then you had Aristotle, who was kind of his, his pupil, right? And he was a materialist. He said the mat material world is primary, mind is secondary. Mind somehow emerges mm. from, from material phenomena. And this is kind of the, this has been the way the world has always been. You go, come, then you come to the 19th century, and Germany is very famous for having had all, all these idealist philosophers like Hegel and Schopenhauer and, and many others. And to them, Kant, Kant was probably the first one of them, uh, and they also had this idea that mind is primary. Then comes the 20th century and the pendulum swings, swings back again to materialism, right? Mm. And you start to understand, but well, these things are actually very uncertain. Is the world material or is it mental or is it something else completely? Maybe both of those theories are wrong, actually. Buddhism might actually posit a third alternative to these things. Uh, and the point here is that the philosophy, whether you are a physicalist, materialist, or you are an idealist, has nothing to do with the results of science. The scientific results of the world can be accommodated to either of those worldviews. So whether we are physicalists or we are, or we are uh, idealists, actually that is a philosophical position, not a scientific position. And this is something I think is largely miscommunicated and underappreciated in the world. Now, actually, we take these things to be scientific truths that have to be, be real because science has shown that the world is a material and physical at root. But actually, that is not true at all. That is a philosophical position. And once you start to understand that, then you start to think, wow, actually, if that is the case, it opens up uh, the possibility that uh, you know, we can look at the world in an entirely different way. We can take entirely different philosophical positions. And once you start to see that, you start to understand that this whole secular approach to Buddhism may actually be fundamentally flawed because we are buying in way too much, uh, buying into this uh, present moment of the way we're viewing the world now, not understanding the seesawing, the swinging of the pendulum back and forth between different ideas. Uh, and then when we let go of that, suddenly all of these other things become possible as a consequence. What, what were I think that's a really... Yeah. I think that I just want to reiterate... The Please. point, though, that you know, in, in the Western philosophy, you've had this kind of need to reduce reality down to a single thing, and it's all material or it's all mental. Whereas Buddhism says, well, actually, it's both. Uh, and I, why that's not occurred to Western philosophy seems to be uh, is beyond me. But please yeah. go on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, I, I I agree, and I think that Buddhism is somehow the the, the very fact that you know. 
philosophy has been kind of going back and forth between materialism and idealism suggests to me that there might be another solution which actually is right because uh, otherwise we the fact that we can't settle on anything seems to that both ideas are flawed somehow deeply maybe mm. but uh, but anyway yeah well, one of the interesting little anecdotes uh, one of the things i heard recently was uh, a um, you know one of these people who are this person is actually an idealist so he's one of the people who's leading kind of idealist philosophy in the world and uh, he said that in the last decade uh, it has been he's also part of a publishing company and he published on these things uh, and he kind of organizes debates between you know physicalists and idealists and these kind of things he probably has a lot of fun doing that i can imagine but he uh, and he has said that in the last 10 years uh, it has almost been impossible to find anyone in the world uh, who is willing to stand up for the classical pure physicalist uh, uh, understanding of the world uh, and that's kind of radical right that, that means that the idea that physicalism somehow is deeply flawed is really starting to take hold not just among a few philosophers uh, but actually in the kind of more broadly among scientists and philosophers in a very broad sense uh, that no one is any and willing to start to understand that actually there are some very very serious consequences or, or problems with this whole approach so i think seeing that and seeing how some of the uh, philosophers and some of the scientists are starting to shift ground looking at the world in new ways you know famous physicists like carlo rovelli who is kind of taking a he actually has a little bit of buddhist background as well they are kind of starting to shift and they're starting to look at the world in the you know in, in very different ways I think that we are actually in the middle of one of these paradigm shifts that uh, that book talked about, the structure of scientific revolutions. Uh, we're actually in the middle of moving from one web worldview to another one. Uh, and I think the next you know, decade or two or, or, or whatever is going to be very interesting to watch what happens in this particular area. And uh, I, I, can, you know, I can only imagine if you are a secular Buddhist uh, and you have based your entire understanding of the world on a materialist outlook, yeah, then it turns out to be wrong it's going to be devastating you know it's going to be really uh, really really rough and i think if i were those secular buddhists i would start to reconsider my position and uh, you know um, not and understand that actually maybe you know by teaching in this way perhaps we're leading people down the garden path and in the wrong direction and that we should uh, reevaluate what actually is going on and try to kind of uh, uh, have put place more faith in the buddha maybe the buddha did have some very very significant insights so maybe we really should take this message extremely seriously yeah? because there are mm. truths that kind of are more overarching than uh, the, the contemporary truths of science or philosophy yeah? absolutely and also i have to agree that like going away from um, perhaps uh, intellectual elites like philosophers what i'm seeing because i spent too much time on the internet is uh, there's a lot of near-death experiences being reported, like literally thousands. And one of the things that's interesting I find is that regardless of their religious or philosophical background, which often gets added on as part of their perception, you keep hearing one of the key features is this is not just one life. This is not your only yeah. life. You live, you have lived before, yeah. you will live again. And that message just keeps on coming back from these people who have died. Yeah. And it's interesting that it comes back so consistently. Yeah. Right. Exactly. I, I just read a book, by the way, and it was a very nice book. There's a, a maybe the world's number one expert on near death experiences, a fellow called Bruce Grayson. Uh, 
Um, mm-hmm. And he has a book called After, in which he talks about his career and talks about many examples of near-death experiences. And you know, that's exactly what you are what you are saying now is this kind of feeling that there is more than one life. Not only that, but that even many of them seem to understand the ideas of karma as well. How they, you know, yes, how, yeah, how how they were kind of affected. Many of the ideas that you find in there, this is actually also fascinating. Many of the ideas you find are actually ideas you find in the suttas. The idea like the life review is kind of found also in kind of embryonic form in the suttas. The idea of self-judgment, yeah, you judge yourself, that's also found in the suttas. There's a, this is found in the sutta in the Angu- numerical discourses 3, number 38 or something like that, the Yama, Yama Sutta, I think it's called. And uh, so, so these things, I actually find a lot of parallels in the suttas. But what I find is interesting about the, you know, when people, when you actually listen to anecdotes and you listen to these uh, real stories, is that they add a very significant dimension to what you find in the suttas. Mm. In the suttas, it tend to be very dry and very kind of, um, uh, there's kind of a very bare bones kind of vision of the truth. But uh, when you hear these stories, uh, even though they are nowhere near as deep as the suttas are, uh, they still add some realism to the suttas. They add an extra layer. Uh, which I think for many people, we are just not clever, clever enough or intelligent or wise enough to really grasp the suttas properly. So we need these additional anecdotes and stories to really bring the suttas alive. And that is what I found by reading some of these books. Wow, it actually touched me quite powerfully to read these stories. And I realized this is actually helping me to understand the suttas when I read these things. So I, I fully agree with what you're saying. Yeah, so. Mm. Now, can I, I'd like to take things in a slightly different direction. Um, maybe to play devil's advocate for um, secular Buddhism for a moment by pointing out that one of the things that has been popularized by secular Buddhist teachers in the West is the practice of mindfulness. Uh, And now we see mindfulness meditation being taught everywhere. We have uh, versions of this where I guess in some way the the Buddhism has been taken out, like uh, was there cognitive... um, mindfulness therapy um and so forth and here in australia christian schools are teaching mindfulness mm. that's got to be a good thing isn't it <laughs> yeah. right you are you're really out of the devil now that's true okay so <laughs> <laughs> sure it's a good thing i you know i i don't have any problem with christian schools teaching mindfulness i don't have a problem with anyone taking any aspect of buddhism and teaching it whatever they want buddhism is a teaching that talks about reality and insofar as people want to use that and improve their lives i think is wonderful and i think for goodness sake absolutely do it so i i I agree and it's also a way of maybe entering the buddhist ideas a way of kind of getting access to these things as a starting point and all of these things and then maybe once you start to understand that some of these ideas actually come from buddhism maybe you would look further and maybe you actually get even more inspiration even more access to these teachings which will enable you to have an even better life, hopefully, because you are doing these things. So, no, absolutely, it's a very, very good thing. I agree with you. And I don't really have a problem with that at all. What I have a problem with is where we present Buddhism as something different from how the Buddha presented. That is where I have a problem. And, uh, And this is really what kind of is the crux of this issue. And so we need to ensure that when we present Buddhism, we are represented, when we say that we are Buddhists, when we quote the Buddhist suttas, when we write books in the name of Buddhism, 
we should know that we are actually representing the Buddha. When we are representing the Buddha, if we have faith in the Buddha, if we have faith in the understanding and the enlightenment of the Buddha, we need to be humble about our own understanding. We need to be accept that, well, maybe the Buddha had some insights we don't. So if we don't like the idea of rebirth, well, don't mention it, but don't say it's wrong. Because if you're saying it's wrong, you're saying the Buddha was wrong. How can we say the Buddha is wrong? It's kind of madness to say the Buddha was wrong. I mean, the Buddha was, as far as I can tell, the greatest spiritual genius in human history. He was an astonishing person, standing head and shoulder above everyone else. Uh, just reading the suttas is a mind-blowing experience because it is so different from any other religious literature mm. you can find in any other tradition. It is seeped with the idea of morality and kind. There's nothing in there which kind of uh, has any sense of, uh, you know, immorality or dodginess. It's kind of, it has this consistent spiritual uplifting feeling all the way throughout. Uh, so. When we have someone like that, the whole idea of having faith in Buddha, the whole idea of being a Buddhist is that you take refuge. Taking refuge means that you take the Buddha as your teacher, the Dhamma as your teaching, and the Sangha of monastic or the Sangha of enlightened disciple as, as your guide to help help out. Now, if you take the Buddha as your teacher, you have to represent him properly. You have to listen to what he has to say. You have to take his ideas seriously. If you don't do that, you're not taking him as your teacher. You haven't taken refuge. So we need to be honest about who we are. We need to be honest about whether we are real Buddhists or not. And as long as you have, haven't taken that refuge, you're still sitting on the fence. And at the very least, we should be honest about that fence sitting. And then I think we are on the right track. But as far as mindfulness is concerned and all these things, I have no problem at all. Now, one thing I should say is that what you, precisely what you said, the idea of mindfulness-based stress reduction and mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, whatever it's called, um, this was uh, started out uh, in the US back in the 1970s. And one of the kind of uh, main people behind that is a fellow called John Kabat-Zinn, uh, who started this much of this movement, become very, very popular around the world. And, at the beginning, he made a deliberate decision to um, to withdraw, take out all the Buddhist elements and kind of present a purely mindfulness uh, uh, teaching uh, from that because he was afraid that the Buddhist teaching would be too controversial and it would reduce his ability to, you know, uh, present the mindfulness part of things. And, okay, you know, we can... We can agree or disagree with that, but that's not such a big problem uh, because it, at least it didn't misrepresent Buddhism. He just took out one part and presented it separately without saying anything about Buddhism at all. Uh, but uh, the, the problem, of course, with that, and this is what they are starting to see now in mindfulness circles, uh, is that mindfulness on its own is a very weak thing here. It doesn't really have much power. No. Yes, it is useful to some extent. But if you really want to have success in your spiritual life, if you really want to kind of make advances, you want to purify yourself, you want to become, you really want to change your mental states, you have to do so much more. And that is where the rest of the Buddhist path comes in. So I think we are, you know, we are selling ourselves very short. And I think that, uh, yes, we can use mindfulness, but at some point uh, we should also reintroduce some of these other aspects of Buddhism. Uh, and sometimes I think it is a good idea to say that the mindfulness teachings we have actually are largely taken from Buddhist sources, because when people know the source, at least then they have the opportunity to go back to those sources and inquire further. But if we 
kind of imply that this is a purely secular teaching and it doesn't really have any kind of religious affiliation whatsoever, then we are not really giving people that opportunity to uh, go back to the sources and go deeper into the basis, what these things really are about. Uh, that's excellent. I would like to ask a question, which is perhaps um, you've partially answered this or uh, largely answered this already, but maybe by way of summing up what we've been discussing. Um, if secular Buddhism is untrustworthy and if there are parts of it which are misleading or maybe even counterfeit forms of Buddhism, what can we trust? What is authentic? What's an alternative that we should be striving to uh, find and to practice? Yes. Yeah, that's a, that's a very important question, I think. And uh, I think the, um, the answer is essentially that, the, first of all, we need to inquire into what actually is the word of the Buddha. Yeah, this is already quite a difficult thing to answer properly because uh, Buddhism is so incredibly varied. There are so many scriptures. There have been so much development over two and a half thousand years. It is very difficult for people to judge properly what really is the word of the Buddha. But we need to do that inquiry. We need to really get into that. Uh, and uh, some people have done that. Uh, and uh, I have been part of a project called the, the Authenticity of the Early Buddhist Text, but we're together with uh, a monk called Bhante Sujato, who is a very good friend of mine. Uh, and uh, uh, and this book was ha, has been praised at least by some very significant people as being you know um, being kind of uh, uh, worth worthy of a read and understanding. And what we argue in that book uh, is that uh, if you look at the history of Buddhism uh, and you start to uh, you know peel away the various layers of philosoph philosophy, the ver various linguistic layers, uh, trying to understand what was developed first, what what came later, and of course this is possible because language develops, philo philosophy develops, uh, ideas develop over time. It's very obvious when you start to look at it uh, what scriptures are early, what scriptures are late. Uh, when you start to look at that, you start to realize that there are certain scriptures that converge on a certain time and place, uh, and that time and place is the a Ganges plane 2,500 years ago. And that, of course, is exactly what we are, uh, what the, the, the suttas themselves, the, the word of the Buddha, but that we call them now, claim. They claim to be from that area, coming from one person who lived there at roughly that time period. So the, the whole linguistic and uh, philosophical and all the elements that we see and uh, this, this descriptions of these places and all of these kind of things uh, it fits with the claims made in the suttas themselves it's all pointing in a similar kind of direction uh, so because of that we actually we are basically in possession uh, of, of something that is very similar to what the buddha himself taught two and a half thousand years ago uh, these are known as the four main Nikayas in Buddhism. Yeah, the Diganikaya, the Long Discourse, the Middle Length Discourse, the Connected Discourse, and the Numerical Discourses. Uh, and uh, that is really the source of all later Buddhist ideas. Uh, without those four Nikayas, all the rest of Buddhism is meaningless. It is built on that. Uh, and uh, without that, the foundation of the house is taken away. Everything comes crashing down. Uh, so that's where we need to go. And when you go to those... Uh, Suttas, what you find, you find ideas that are, uh, that the whole Buddhist tradition is steeped in. Buddhism is steeped in these ideas. So you find ideas such as rebirth, yeah, very fundamental part of these things. You find ideas like kamma, of course. You find ideas like enlightenment. 
we find the ideas like the importance of monasticism in Buddhism, because monasticism is a is a way of uh, it's almost like a way. Well, it's, it's you know basically the Buddha for the Buddha is the highway to awakening if it is practiced mm. well, but only if it is practiced well, of course. And so all of these ideas are are there, and that is when that is why we can say that if you the only way that you can really take proper refuge in the Buddha is by taking these ideas seriously, because these are obviously ideas that came from the Buddha himself. So that's really, mm. I, I think, the uh, what is at stake there. Yeah. Absolutely. Look, is there anything else that you wanted to add uh, that we haven't touched on so far regarding our discussion on secular Buddhism? Because uh, I do think we've established that secular Buddhism is baloney. So... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I hope I, I hope so. I, I, I should maybe say that I don't want to kind of be saying anything, and you know, I, I don't want to be too hard on people. I I think I recognize that there is a there has been a place in the world for secular Buddhism. It has actually made it an important contribution. It has uh, kind of highlighted the point that there are things in Buddhism which definitely are superstitious. You know, in traditional Buddhist circles. Actually, one thing I should maybe add as well, which I think is interesting, is that um, I don't think it's possible to say that secular Buddhism is an entirely Western phenomenon. I think all Buddhist cultures have had similar ideas throughout history. And those ideas, have, they've taken a slightly different form from the Western form, of course, but the ideas have always been there. And these have been like the reform movements that you've seen in Asia. Yeah. You've seen like places in Thailand where they suddenly someone realized, Jeepers, we're just doing rituals. If the Buddha didn't teach rituals, okay, we've got to purify Buddhism. We've got to get rid of all of the superstition and get back to the core. And that to me is exactly the same movement we find in Asian cultures as we find in the West today. And this has been going on throughout history, all the way back to the time of the Buddha. So this movement back towards the core of things, back to the essence of what Buddhism is about, Secular Buddhism is just the latest iteration of, of some of those movements. So I think there has been, I think secular Buddhism has had a, you know, an important role to play in kind of highlighting certain deficiencies within Buddhism. And that has been very significant and very important. But uh, I think now the time has come to also recognize the, the limits of secular Buddhism itself. In fact, the very severe limits, even so going so far as to having thrown the baby out with the bathwater and where we have actually lost what Buddhism really is about. And the question of whether someone who takes the secular ideas really seriously really can be considered a Buddhist in the ordinary sense of the of the word, I think is very important. So, um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, look, I want to thank you, Ajahn Brahmali, for taking time out of your busy teaching schedule to share your insight and wisdom on this episode of Treasure Mountain. Thank you once again. Thank you so much, Saul. Yeah. Okay. And thank you to all our listeners for joining us for this challenging and somewhat controversial episode of Treasure Mountain, in which Ajahn Brahmali a monk at the forefront of connecting modern audiences to the meaning and practices of early Buddhism has pointed out that secular Buddhism is not really an authentic form of Buddhism at all and only provides a veneer of Buddhism without the substance. Treasure Mountain Podcast is now part of the Everyday Dharma Network and I'll have more to tell you about that in 
future weeks. For now, you can find out more about the Treasure Mountain podcast by going to the website www.everydaydhamma.net slash treasure mountain. You can find all the previous episodes and information about all our guests there. And if you go back to everydaydhamma.net, on the homepage there, you can discover more about three other podcasts on our network. I think you might like them. And tell me what you think by contacting me via the contact page. If you enjoy this podcast, you can subscribe to Treasure Mountain using your favorite podcast app in order to get notified about future episodes. And don't forget to tell your friends about Treasure Mountain too. I'll have more inspiring guests and topics in the coming weeks. Until then, I wish you all the very best on your spiritual voyage.